I hope that there's greater documentation of this work that we're doing, especially when it comes to working within tribes in the United States, because when that word extinction is thrown at you constantly and you're reminded that your demographic is subordinate and is going to be on its way, how can we fight against that? We had been sold a narrative that we didn't have writing. So discovering these writing systems was a real moment of empowerment. This realization that, wow, imagine the generations of people who were sold this fallacy about a whole continent and a whole people. That was just like a huge moment for me. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Centre College of Design. Sadie Redwing and Saki Mufundikwa grew up a world and two generations apart. Sadie was born into the Lakota tribe and also considers herself a citizen of the Spirit Lake Nation of Fort Totten, South Dakota, two long-standing American Indigenous communities. Saki, on the other hand, didn't set foot in the United States until he left his native Zimbabwe at age 24 in 1979, almost 20 years before Sadie was born. Despite their different points of origin, their approach to their chosen profession is strikingly similar. They're both pioneering designers who focus their practices on giving voice and context to underrepresented communities and they both compel us to know rich visual languages that have often been subsumed or ignored by mainstream designs biased toward Western modes of communication. Their approach to achieving these shared goals, however, is uniquely their own. Sadie set out to restore visual sovereignty through her series of irreverent lectures highlighting the importance of removing stereotypes from indigenous visual languages. Saki has deployed design as a means to empower and increase representation, both through his groundbreaking book, African Alphabets, and by opening the Zimbabwe Institute of Vigital Arts in Harare. Vigital is his made-up word to describe the intersection of visual and digital. Saki and Sadie joined forces for the first time in a joint workshop at Art Center entitled Finding Our Way Home. The four-hour workshop created a space for students of all backgrounds to visually identify themselves, exhibit pride and representation, and come away with a renewed strength in their work. For the students who attended, the experience was nothing short of transformative. Please enjoy my conversation with Sadie Redwing and Saki Mafundikwa. I think what I'd like to do is to begin to ask you each to introduce yourselves. You're here doing a workshop that's talking about self-discovery and finding your way home and seems to be fitting to ask you directly to tell us a little bit about who you are. I am Sadie Redwing. I am an enrolled member of the Spirit Lake Dakota Nation out of Fort Taunton, North Dakota. Um, grew up in Central South Dakota. Uh, background, a lot in um, design research, I would say, but more of um, catering design research to focus on the Indigenous perspective. So, for example, this workshop gave us opportunity to really share, you know, what does a cultural perspective look like in something that is design-related. Um, so having a lot of my cultural tribal influence into a lot of that work and also opening up questions of what is missing when it comes to uh, higher education 
um, within the design field for students who may be underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I um, have previously worked at the University of Redlands, um, have done some student advocating, teaching. Uh, right now, currently, I'm working with uh, one of my students out of Hilo, Hawaii, and an uh, internship in conducting greater authenticity when wanting to bring indigenous culture into something like personal branding. So kind of in the forte of uh, a little bit of graphic design, a little bit of higher education, kind of looped into one. (laughs) Right. And say a word about your own educational background, too. Yeah. So I um, got my BFA in New Media Arts and Interactive Design from the Institute of uh, Native American Arts, which is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Following II in Santa Fe, I went to North Carolina State University. I got my master's in graphic design in 2016, so go Wolfpack. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after I re- uh, received those two degrees, uh, the protest at Standing Rock was going on. And I went to Standing Rock and um, soon found myself as a role as educator following that protest. Great. All right, Saki, tell us, tell mm-hmm. us about you. Okay. I am a graphic designer. A uh, design educator, um, filmmaker, uh, author, and most proudly, a farmer. My educational background, I came to the States in the pretty much at the end of the 70s, uh, 1980 actually, and um, went to grad school here, at uh, undergraduate school rather, at Indiana University in Bloomington, and um, majored in... Uh, fine arts and telecommunications. Then after graduation, I got into the MFA program at Yale uh, in graphic design. And uh, I always tell people that my understanding of typography came together then. In undergrad school, we were just told, okay, so there are a number of typefaces, okay, and so those are the ones that you should use. <laughs> and we didn't understand why, you know. But um, when I go to grad school and uh, I discovered the existence of uh, African writing systems, it literally changed my world. And this was through the head of graphic design at Yale at that time was uh, Alvin Eisenman. He asked me where I was from, and I said, I'm from Zimbabwe. He said, okay. What language do you speak, Shona? I said, is it written? I'm like, oh, what kind of question is that? Of course it's written. All languages are written. I said, what are the characters like? I mean, characters? You mean Roman alphabet? So he couldn't hide his disappointment. You know, I said, no, no, no. I, I heard that there were some African societies that uh, designed their own writing systems. So I said, oh, I should look into that. And that became my thesis. And Yale was so excited, they wanted me to publish it, which I did in 2004. Mm. So in the meanwhile, I think it's while I was at Yale also, I got my first taste of uh, teaching. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that a lot. I realized that um, I'm very good with students. And so when I got to New York, it wasn't very difficult to persuade me to teach. So I started teaching at, uh, at uh, Cooper Union as an adjunct while I worked full-time as an art director at Random House. So while at um, Cooper Union, that's when the bug to return home and do something really beat. 
and uh, Cooper Union was very supportive in my endeavors to return home and, and start a school, School of Design. So I moved back home 1998, and uh, it took a year for me to get the uh, certification to start the school. We'll go back to some of those projects, but that's really wonderful. Now, how, how did the two of you come together? How did this collaboration begin? Well, I had heard about Sadie, and uh, I really was attracted to her work. Yeah. And uh, always wanted to, to meet her. And I never foresaw an opportunity where we could actually work together until Arden uh, Stern I see. So this is Act One of the collaboration here at yes. Art Center. Oh, yes. how wonderful! Yes. How wonderful! Arden Stern suggested uh, we do a workshop together, and I jumped on that baby because you know I just knew it was going to be a very amazing collaboration, yeah, and it is. So, can you both talk a little bit about what the workshop is about and what you're trying to do? Yeah. Um, so I received an email out of the blue from Arden and kind of expressing this idea of this workshop. Previously, uh, since 2016, I've been given opportunities to present on um, some of the research I do. The presentation that um, is most popular that I love to give is called the Stereotype, which is trying to show greater examples of what Native American uh, representation looks like without the stereotype. Um, and a lot of that deals with various symbolic visual languages that has um, a lot of reference to other cultures globally. And being in a position of having to speak at conferences or giving a lecture, I would get more and more people coming up to me. And it's like, wow, you know, that's very similar to um, our alphabets or that's very similar to how we visually communicate. And actually, I, um, I never would envision myself being in a position to be able to give workshops on this because I'm, I'm coming from a newer generation in Saki and kind of coming out of the contemporary millennials of MTV and skateboarding and um, kind of like the the underground more uh, style and design and how can we bring something that's a little bit more traditional that maybe my generation doesn't have great interest in it. So my immediate reactions and excitement of jumping on board was, yeah, if this is an opportunity to kind of really share what's, you know, sharing a lot of what Lakota visual language looks like, yeah, extremely excited and very thankful that we could have we cr able to create the space. I mean, here you are talking about a different generation, different parts of the world, different experience, and yet there's a kind of coming home and you're coming together too, as you, as you point out, you're wrestling with very similar kinds of questions. So there's that level that happens too, and a kind of beautiful uniting that happens even as one learns about one's own home or one's own journey. Right, right. Yeah. And for me, uh, I've had a long fascination with Native Americans. And in fact, when I came the second time, my second coming to America, which was like two years ago, to Seattle area, mm -hmm. I was quite excited that uh, there's a, a large... Uh, population of uh, indigenous people there, the Salish, Duwamish, and they have a an amazing sort of tradition of uh, graphic arts and also wood, working in wood. They do the long houses, the canoes, and these huge totem poles, and a very unique graphic style, which 
it just makes me wonder why it's not uh, part of the mainstream discourse on design. And also, of course, there's the issue of uh, the colonization of uh, Native Americans, which we went through during my time as a young man in uh, what was called Rhodesia before it became Zimbabwe. And so I've always had this um, desire to really interface with the people to find out from them what are the issues, you know, because I kind of had a feeling that uh, we might share a lot in common. Right. Yeah. And so to find this in uh, someone as young as Sadie was just like, wow, really inspiring. I want to spend a few minutes with each of you into your work, and then I, we can open it again with some questions pertinent to both of you, too. But, Sadie, I, I'm certainly interested in your work right now with tribal colleges, mm -hmm. with what you're trying to bring to that situation and how you understand it. Part of what you were referencing earlier, which I find really interesting, is the extent to which we need to change what's going on in, in art and design schools that exist today versus the idea of building new ones and how those two things might work together. I'm very interested in your notion of stereotypes and how that gets generalized and what goes on in that particular context. So you can find something in that, or I have a lot more that I'm interested in that I could list for you. Yeah. A lot of that probably go through my journey. Um, so I was always in school in, in various aspects. So for example, um, both my grandmothers um, had great influence in my upbringing. My Mother's mom taught Head Start um, pre-K or, you know, pre-kindergarten. So she would always have education books, activities, craft supplies that she'd bring home from, from the preschools. My mom, uh, while growing up, she attended the University of South Dakota. So here I was again in an in a, um, educational space, you know, sitting next to her in her classrooms. Like she'd give me some of her homework and have me, um, I, she took a lot of anatomy classes. I remember um, coloring in a lot of muscles or whatever um, she needed to be color coordinated in for her. And then by high school, went to a suburb of Des Moines, Iowa, Milwaukee, and predominantly white, uh, predominantly wealthy, and me being a complete um, opposite. Uh, one of the on, one of the few, probably aside from my little brother, who was Native American in that school space, and didn't come from a, a wealthy background whatsoever. So I grew a lot of um, angst and trauma from that experience. So I was looking, following high schools, looking to get into a place whether it be community college, college, you know, private universities, whatever. I just wanted to be around um, more Native Americans mm. or just finding greater community because I didn't have one in high mm -hmm. school. Attended College Horizons, and someone suggested to me, you know, why don't you check out II? They said, you have a lot of great interests in graphic design. They have um, an art school down there that you might be interested. So went down to Santa Fe from 2009 to 2013, and really opened my eyes. Like this is the first time like I stepped onto a campus and I see teachers who look like me. Um, this is the first time I can go into a library and all the authors sitting on the library are predominantly um, Native American authors. I'm getting exposed to all these tribes I didn't even know existed. Um, getting to see a chance what their artwork looked like. But what made it comfortable, too, is that when someone looks like you or someone talks like you or, you know, if someone is helping provide help, 
in a way that you don't feel subordinate. Like you feel included, you feel involved and to be in a position of learning when it's comfortable to you. Like I made all the difference in the world. Oh, I, that's, that's kind of like my go-to for advice when bringing inclusivity um, into a space. And I want to go be a teacher at, um, at a tribal college. So looking at uh, graduate programs, I was really looking at um, UNC. UNC being, for listeners who don't know. <laughs> University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Yeah. I wanted to um, go wear the blue, but the tuition was way out of my price range. Um, someone referenced, well, check out state schools, North Carolina State. Fortunately got accepted. And um, I had no idea what I was walking into when I first arrived. Very first day, I walk into a room, and I am the first Native American that some of those people have ever seen. So to know that you're going to have to sit in a classroom when someone has never met a Native American before or seen one in real life was a huge shocker. Now, there was some wonderful and really advanced stuff that we were learning in there, but it always came down to, okay, Sadie, you want to go be a teacher, and you're going to go to a tribal college? There's going to be Native American students in your classroom, and... I was kind of like frustrated and I was just like, you know, it's really hard for me to really get into this materials because I'm not for sure or I can't picture how to use some of these future technologies home. You know, you can give me a thousand Oculus uh, goggle things for your for your smartphone, but what's the use of it when I take it back to South Dakota and we, we barely got 3G, um, you know, a lot of folks don't have internet, you know, we're struggling just to make it out there. So I said it. I hate to say, but I may be the only one sitting in this room who has to go back to a reservation or go back to a tribal community or think about um, the Native American demographic. How do I do that? So I brought a lot of that attention to my thesis research. And what I found out is that I was struggling. When we're at IAI, we learned about terms like visual sovereignty. We learned about terms like decolonization. How do you reverse cultural appropriation? What are some ways to diffuse that conversation when it gets out of control or, you know, greater protocols? I wanted to have that conversation with my classmate or my cohort or, you know, some of my mentors, but it was really challenging when they just, those were terms that couldn't be grasped. And I think that's when the fire started started mm. to, to feel. Mm. It's like, you know, going back to what Saki said about that textbook, like, why am I reading a graphic des- history, graphic design textbook? And, you know, there's Chinese calligraphy in there. There's the Greek alphabets. There's Egyptian hieroglyphics. But, you know, why are we reading that here when we have the exact same things here? There's written text like the Cherokee syllabi. You know, why aren't we learning about that? Mm. So thinking of that, I'm going to do design research. I want to go find where those resources are at. You know, I couldn't find them at, at our libraries. So that would be the extra effort that um, I would have to exert just to, you know, find something of my interest. So I think having that experience of, okay, this is what the future trends looks like in design research. They're forgetting a lot of people in that research when it comes to resources. Um, So my main goal was I want to be a good teacher. I want to be a good teacher for Native American students because we don't have them. 
So um, leaving North Carolina State with a thesis and saying, hey, look, here's one example we can do. You know, we can create an app that will allow those who are not familiar with some of our tribal visual languages just to play around, just to get familiar. Because that's what's most important first is to find the comfort before, you know, really stress them to know everything about the language. So it was an invitation to engage. Yeah. yeah. And just by chance, um, the pipeline coming from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico was starting to reroute through uh, North Dakota, originally on Bismarck, but then they pushed onto the reservation. And that reservation of uh, Standing Rock is just right above uh, Cheyenne River, which has great effects on my home and my community and my water resources, which we're having those effects right now. I immediately went to go be protective of the water and to be a part of the Standing Rock movement. And I did not know what would come out of having a graphic design background and being in a place like a protest. In my presentation, the stereotype, I really share a lot of imagery that comes out of Standing Rock. So the Indigenous People's Power Project out of Oakland really came to the Standing Rock and made a camp where screen printers can pull on um, screens and make banners to protest with and to be in a position of, wow, like this is what uh, visual, well, let me give this example. Being Lakota or Dakota or being Native American in general, my grandmother always says, our race is only one drop of water in the whole bucket. We don't have the populations like we used to. Not everybody knows our language. So if we're at Standing Rock and we're chanting and singing and praying and there's cops around, you know, and people don't know our language, how how do they know what we're saying? How do they know what we're fighting for? And how do we how do they know, like, you know, where our values are into this? You have to visually show it. So that's where the art or the visual communicator comes in. And University of Redlands offered me a teaching position and to have a opportunity to kind of share what Indigenous perspective looks like in communication. And that's really just like the workshop, finding our way home. What, How do you visually represent yourself that gives pride, that gives identity? And I think as designers, I and really And comes from iterate. a position of strength. Right? Absolutely. One right, right. I think I stress to my students a lot is that we have a lot of power in giving somebody life. We have a lot of power in giving someone identity and pride and... Um, that image is in our hands, and it can be easily abused. So um, how do we go? What In what ways do we avoid that? In what ways do we actually let someone be who they are and, and represent it visually? Thank you. All right, so <laughs> You spoke and you've written, and I've heard you say why you love typography, why you love letter form. And I'm particularly keen on, and this relates to what Sadie was saying too, about what typography tells us about the story of a people and of a civilization and how you unpack those letter forms to understand that, which I think your book does so beautifully. My path uh, along typography started when I was a kid. I was really just fascinated by letter forms. Yeah. And my, my, my father being a teacher, there was a lot of literature around the house, a lot of books, a lot of magazines. And I thought all those were done by hand. So I set the, the bar for myself that I want to draw letter forms as well as the ones I see in my father's books. So when I was, I think, about uh, 10, I was doing his charts for 
they call them uh, class aides, you know, for teaching, teaching aides. And when the other teachers saw that, they were like, oh, my God, who does those charts for you? They said, my son. So I'm like, oh, can you do mine too? So I became the designated dra uh, graphic designer. So when other kids were playing outside during break, uh, I was in, inside drawing charts. And also in the afternoon after school, kids were going to work in the, in the garden and stuff like that. I would be indoors working. So that just became my thing. Right up to the time when I was interviewed, being interviewed by Alvin Eisenman, right, for admission to the MFA program in graphic design at Yale. All I knew was hieroglyphics. I had not heard about these writing systems that were devised by Africans. And what that came to mean to me, which is why I say it became my life's work, was that we had been sold a narrative that we didn't have writing. Right. And that um, the reference, I think it's Levi uh, Strauss, the uh, French anthropologist who said that uh, the dark, as in dark continent, referred to Africa's lack of writing. So discovering these writing systems was a really moment of empowerment, this realization that, wow, Imagine the generations of people who were sold this fallacy about a whole continent and a whole people. That was just like a, a huge moment for me. So when I see now what's happening with uh, what my book has spawned, the initiatives that are being taken around the world uh, by different people, it's, it just it gives me a glow. Now there are people who have digitized these phones to a point where you can actually purchase them and use them on any platform. Yeah. You know? And it's amazing how that story you just told echoes so much of what Sadie was saying earlier, too. Yes. Right? Yes. And how we uncover these rich, beautiful, visual, written cultures and systems yes. and how much it tells us about community and people in history and history right. and life. Right. After the workshop, I thought it would be useful to hear about the experience from one of the participants. I chose designer-photographer Amina Maya as someone who could speak directly to Saki's influence on her creative practice. I found her feedback to be rich with insight. Okay, I'm recording now. How's that sound? Storytelling is kind of a buzzword in design right now. It's used in a way that's like, okay, if we tell this story in the right way, people will buy things or people will, you know, see our company in a different light. What's been kind of lost in what um, Saki and Sadie so perfectly embody is the use of design as a way of passing on information to future generations. I'm Amina Maya. I'm a designer and a photographer. Indigenous design is something that I kind of self-studied for a long time because it wasn't really discussed that much in my design education. Um, but something that 
I feel really deeply connected to. And I did a project where I created an apothecary um, that was inspired by ancestral wisdom. I actually spent a lot of time researching my family history. You know, I found that on my mom's side, she has Creole ancestors from Louisiana, uh, Native American ancestors from Arkansas region, and African American ancestors, as well as white ancestors. Um, and the same thing on my father's side, his family is West African and Black American, West Indian from the Virgin Islands. And uh, the amount of migration and the amount of um, of different cultures that came together in order to create me, um, I, I felt like that was really significant to my identity and also to the work that I do. And so I really tried to um, incorporate my research into my history and my research into my family, um, into the work that I was doing. Saki was really like a mentor to me during that process. Um, and so when I moved on to LA, I sent him a message to let him know I was here. And he told me he was going to be hosting a workshop at Art Center. So I was like, okay, um, I will be there. <laughs> I remember the theme being like finding your way home, which I thought was really beautiful. You know, we have uh, an indigenous person and an African person teaching us about the design of their ancestors and subsequently the design of our ancestors. That's also finding a home, right? It's finding a space where your perspective and your history is also valued. Um, and I think that that feels like home, especially when you've been in design spaces where that's not the case. I would definitely describe the experience as recentering. I think finding your way home as a title for the workshop was, um, it was finding your way home as a designer of color in a world that um, can be very isolating sometimes, right? Um, it was finding a place to ground your own design practice, to ground the cultural elements that we inherently bring into our design practice that are sometimes not appreciated. Sadie Redwing, I had not met them before the workshop. Um, and so one thing that I really loved about Sadie's work was the fact that they symbols that they use in their design, the way that it tied back to nature and uh, the way that it was almost like telling a story in the design, right? So you have this design, maybe it's a poster for an event, but at the same time, it's also telling you an entire story about how that event came to be, you know, the people who would be involved in that event. Like there was so much there. And I realized that um, that's what we have lost in design um, in a lot of ways is, um, you know, that connection to the deeper symbology uh, that's existed for like millions of years. And then Saki, I, I have really admired his work for a long time. You know, I saw a narrative that I identified with represented. I have um, just really benefited from his wisdom and benefited from him kind of paving the way for African designers and design and for advocating 
design that is not Eurocentric, design that comes from um, cultures that stretch you know, millennia back and that have huge, rich histories that are centered in design that we, we don't usually see. One of the things I loved most about the workshop was that it really encapsulated what decolonized design looks like. It was a workshop that expanded the definition of design to include the people who were in the workshop, the people who were not in the workshop, and the people who probably never considered themselves designers. It talked about design from the perspective of the indigenous woman, of the African man and allowed us to really see the work that other cultures have done as design. That handicraft or that, you know, um, those primitive tools that, that, we've, that we've found um, dating back to 10,000 years ago, yes, that is actually design. They presented everything on an equal playing field and didn't give anything more or less credence, um, you know, because of where it was from or because of who created it. So I want to just turn to have a brief conversation about education and particularly educating creative people and artists and designers and what it means to help us think through our commitment to doing precisely what you're talking about, of getting that library set up right, of building the resources that you're talking about, of opening our minds and hearts to cultures and histories that are meaningful to take the narrow framework of a Western perspective and allow it to open and explode in the richness of the learning that can happen for our students. And I'm interested in just getting some of your reflections on just how you think that's possible and to guide that, and again, you can make your choice here, but how is that relevant to critique? How is that relevant to the craft and skill and technology that we teach? How is it relevant to the kind of ethics we teach. I mean, again, however you may want to go about it, or how, how, for that matter, does it affect pedagogy itself, teaching itself? And if you could just each spend a couple of minutes talking about that, it would be enormously helpful to hear. I will take that up because um, it's something I've been grappling with for, I would say, the last 20 years, running my own school. First of all, when I came to America and, and discovered graphic design, which I was doing growing up. I just didn't have a word for it. I just knew I drew letter forms and stuff. It's only when I got to Indiana University that I discovered graphic design and knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. And on after the independence, independence of Zimbabwe, I used to go back home like every couple of years and see the work that was being done uh, in Zimbabwe like ads and, you know, just design. And I wasn't very happy with what I saw because basically what people were doing were they were copying what was happening, what was being done in Europe and over here in the U.S. And nothing Zimbabwean was coming out of uh, Zimbabwe in terms of design. So I always felt like I wanted to change that. So after graduate school and teaching uh, in New York at Cooper Union, I really felt like if I were to return home, what I wanted to do, what I could give to my country was really education. I 
didn't have any money, but uh, it didn't stop me. You know, <laughs> I just I was just like, now I'll get the money. I know that if I start the school, I'm gonna get the money. So I, I just want to go home and start this school. So I arrived home, and everybody was asking me, "Well, do you have the money?" And I was like, "What do I need money for?" You know, I'm going to run a school and the money will come. But 20 years later, the money hasn't come. And uh, it's not because there's anything wrong with the school or the mission or anything. But politics has uh, prevented uh, us attracting any funding. And you might say, how do you mean politics? Well, up until 2017, November, We've been ruled since the independence by one guy, and that's uh, Mugabe. Mm. So we became a pariah state, and nobody wanted to fund projects in Zimbabwe. But what kept the, the college going was really support from the Zimbabwean public. Uh, parents were willing to pay fees to keep the school going. How many students are in the school now? Well, we, t- we take 18 a year. And it's a two-year diploma program. So anywhere from 30, 36 uh, Mm -hmm. uh, at any given time. time. The school has been like a lab for me. It's kind of like I used to say that uh, I wanted the school to be like a Bauhaus type of institute where we came up with or dreamt new ideas and new, you know, forms of pedagogy and interrogated them and had the opportunity to try them out. Some of that has been successful, but a lot of it has has just been like um, dreams. Right. And my dream was that by now, 20 years, the school should have turned into a university, you know, not only for Zimbabwe, but for the region, for Africa. For the world. For the world. Yes. So when people talk about, I've been a victim of politics, some have been victims physically, you know, and knock on wood, that hasn't happened to me yet. But in terms of like my dream, realizing my dream for Zimbabwe, and I did this for Zimbabwe. This wasn't really for Sakima Fundikwa, you know. This was really for Zimbabwe. I never could. And yet you soldier on. And I've heard you say, in fact, you said it today, you've said it in other places, that focus, that tenacity, that perseverance is everything. Because I believe in it. I believe in that dream. I really believe that there's currency to it, that it it has a place in the world of uh, design education. And now there's a term for what we've been soldiering on about. Now they call it decolonization of design education, right? But we have been living it. We've been practicing exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. You know, without uh, banging on, on uh, plates and pots and, <laughs> and pans, you know, without exactly. making any noise. Exactly. We've been working very quietly. And I think that's what uh, SADI is also doing. Right. And um, I just hope it doesn't take you 20 years, said you. <laughs> well, I ho- yeah. Though I wouldn't be surprised, frankly, if one of your students became one of the future leaders of Zimbabwe and things changed pretty radically. Well, wouldn't that, be- that would be, that would yeah. bring me so much joy. Yeah. You know? So, Sadie, how would you wrestle with that question of education and um, art and design education yeah, in particular? Just, yeah. Just, I think one thing that I admire about Saki is 
everything that he's accomplished is what I hope to accomplish within my journey. I want to be in a position where I have texts, um, a textbook, or be in a position where if I'm struggling to find um, greater degrees and curriculums with the United States, how can I create one? How can I create maybe a tribal design college? And then having those goals, it's like, well, where do I start? How do you even get something like that off the ground? And I think Saki hit the the keyword grappling. Um, when it comes to education, it's a lot of standing up for what you believe in. So being in my position, coming out of, uh, you know, fresh out of school, um, looking in hopes to being a teacher or looking in hopes to be put in a position of being an educator, whether that be inside or outside of the classroom, what is that going to look like for myself? And I think that's the challenging part. And, um, you know, a lot of this motivation, a lot of this drive to, you know, whether it be create change within education or just to create new um, material for education um, I feel most joy and most um, meaningful when, you know, my students excel from it. So I've been in a position where, okay, if you want to run a class that talks about um, material that you're lacking the resources on, you know, how is that class going to even function? But this is where the exhausting part comes in, is that now we got to see what, what how this education plays to other roles. So, for example, if I wanted to tackle this term decolonization, well, how is math doing it? What is um, being shared in astronomy? I think when I'm struggling and I'm put in a position where I have to create these materials to be used within a syllabus or used as a homework assignment in a classroom— I really have to see how other fields write it and how other fields are teaching it and how other fields are communicating it or how other artists and designers are speaking it and see if I understand it and see if I and if I don't, then I have to do a little bit more research. But being put in those positions of having to create something on your own and you are to be seen as an expert, it's it's tough. And I'm still navigating um, through creating those resources. Now, what I've been fortunate is having greater guidance. And a lot of that guidance comes through, you know, people have taken me under their wing and being able to share their work with me. So I like I this is very helpful within, you know, this workshop, this experience of Saki, you know, other other mentors that I see when I can just sit down with them, talk with them, you know, have long conversations with them. Like all of that is helpful for me and within, within the classroom. And I'm really trying to critique myself on how I make a classroom comfortable. Because it's not just Native American students that are usually in my classroom. It's students who are indigenous from all over the, the globe. So that means instead of just having the United States I got to cover, I got to cover more globally now. Um, wow, I have great respect to Australia and a lot of the um, indigenous people there who have started their own design schools but, you know, to looking at them for guidance, how, how do they frame a concept like this and kind of seeing like how they how they write to know that there is an example out there somewhere. It takes a little bit more effort to find. Um, I think people don't realize how exhausting that is on one person. You know, I, I think there is a huge responsibility to be carried. I'm trying to be a sponge and soak in to make sure that I am being respectful of traditional teachings and cultures 
and making sure that these students are comfortable and that how I am modeling, how I'm communicating and how I'm modeling, how I'm, you know, functioning and performing, that that's what, you know, I hope for them to take. That's what keeps me in this type of work. So this podcast really tries to explore issues of transformation in terms of change and affecting change. And it's always important for me to ask people what influencing change means to them. And so if I could just have you uh, each just briefly talk about what change means to you, um, we could wrap up with that. Yeah. um, I think the reason I hope to influence change, you know, within our education or design equity amongst, you know, indigenous culture is the preservation aspect. I hope that there's greater documentation of this work that we're doing, especially when it comes to working within tribes in the United States, because when that word extinction is thrown at you constantly and you're reminded that your demographic is uh, subordinate and is going to be on its way, how can we fight against that? How can we make our youth proud to want to better themselves? You know, sharing similar feelings with Saki. You know, sometimes you come from a place where there's more negative connotation and representation than the positive, and we see a lot of that within tribal reservations. What longevity can we create in these conversations? What preservation can we create in these resources? And what influence do we have within change in education? So whether that be creating more syllabi, um, you know, creating more schools, uh, creating more workshops and trainings within the classroom, outreach and retention, we're having to navigate through the systems within that are created within education, learning those systems and then seeing how we can pull methods and pieces so that we can create something for ourselves, and, the, and a lot of it is just for sustainability. Thank you. Thank you. Saki? Well, I'm happy to say that in my lifetime, I've seen things change uh, in design education from the time when, well, pretty much I think it was accepted that design is something that if you were in, in Africa or in another part of the world, you came either to Europe or you went to Europe or to the United States to study. It was a Western construct that you had to leave home to to study. And I've seen that change to uh, inclusion, which was inclusion of women and minorities. I lived through that here in America. And now I'm seeing the debate turning to decolonization, which means that the breaking down of the boundaries and the walls around this design concept, that it belongs to everybody. Everybody has a say. Everybody has their own understanding of it, and that is just as valid, and that uh, it's acceptable, and it should be part of the classroom experience, uh, especially seeing that the demographics are changing in America. That, to me, gives me a lot of hope. And I just hope that what I'm expressing here, Sadie 
should also be able to express that the voice of the indigenous people in America is being heard and being listened to and that things are changing for them. Inclusion. So really, when I hear that word change, I see a lot of progress has been made, but listening to Sadie, I can hear that it's still sort of like a long way for the original people of America. And I really hope that that will change. Well, thank you both. Um, thank you for being here, being on campus. Thank you for the time that you spent here, for your thoughtfulness, for your knowledge, for the wisdom that you bring, for uh, opening our minds and hearts to so many things that you are holding out there for us that you're fighting for. And it's just been a great privilege for me to sit down and talk to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, we want to thank you for having us. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Arts Centre College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer Christine Spines, Co-producer, Luis Silva, editor, Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant, Christopher Boland. <laughs>